0: Morning. Happy Mother's Day. As the kids are being dismissed with Miss Aloy here, get excited. They're going to be coming back in here at the end. You don't want to miss that. It's going to be good uh, for those mothers. Very excited about it. My kids are helping them out. Very appropriate Mother's Day. My wife is at home with a sick kid, so if you think about it, it, that fits. It works. It's mothers. They, They take care of everyone. So happy Mother's Day. We love you. Uh, Please take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. Your last week was all about how good and necessary God's living and active word is. These words that we're about to read, so I encourage you to have them open in front of you. My words are supposed to come from these words. My my words are supposed to be an opening up and explaining of these words that are eternal. Life. So open up to the words of John chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 16 through 24 this morning, page 902 in the Pew Bible. Thursday night we talked about choice, life is choice. Deuteronomy eleven twenty-six. see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Choose wisely. Life is made up of choices. Life is also made up of expectations. Let's talk again this morning about expectations. What do you expect out of life? What do you expect the Christian life to be like? What did you expect your life to be like by this point? Right now. Disappointments abound, probably. I expected to be an author by this point. A complete fail. uh, Utterly failed. I so love books and words and reading them that I assumed I'd be good at writing them and I'd get around to it eventually. Nope. I've read uh, close to 30 books about writing books and have not yet written one actual book, so I'm just going to keep reading the books. I've had to set that expectation aside. Five kids, church, just general inability. Um, So just expectations, set it aside. But I do read... Anything, by anyone that I sort of knew, I think there's probably like a sinful part of it where I'm like, I'm going to read it and I'm going to hope it's terrible so that I can feel better about myself. That yeah, they wrote something, but it's not any good. So I read everything by anyone who I have known who has written something. My uncle has written a number of books. They're actually excellent. Amazon, Steve Shores, uh, check him out. It's good stuff. Recently, I saw that a lady who went to our church growing up had written a book. She was my older sister's best friend, and so I thought I would check it out. We would not align on everything theologically, so I was slightly skeptical. And it was actually better than I thought that it would be. There was some good stuff in there. And then all of a sudden, as I was working through this book, I read this. When I was in college, I'll never forget my friend Tricia once saying, expectations are preconceived resentments. Oh, that's my sister. That's, that's Trish. She was quoting my sister, in the book that I, the sister's brother, was reading some however many years later. I thought that was pretty cool. Trish is one of my favorite people in the world. She was just here with us. She's dropped all kinds of wisdom on me over the course of my life, but this one I got randomly, secondhand, through a book that her friend wrote. Expectations are preconceived resentments. Now, I looked it up, and apparently that's a big AA thing. Uh, Expectations are premeditated resentments. Resentments. I don't think that my college-age sister had been to AA or anything. Whatever the origin of the phrase, I've never had an original thought in my life. But whatever its origin, it's it's true. Expectations are preconceived or premeditated resentments. Potentially, of course, wrong, realistic expectations. You begin to anticipate something. You expect it as you expect it. You desire it as you desire it. You often eventually demand it. And then when you don't get it, disappointment, resentment. Expectations are really important. What do you expect the Christian life to be like? Your life to be like? Jesus is really going to help us here. He is going to help us see clearly. He's going to help us on the path to joy, but Jesus is also realistic. As God, of course, he knows how things work. He designed how things work. And then he submitted himself to those very things when we messed them all up. And so while Christ is going to provide for us clarity to get us to joy, the path there is one often marked by confusion and sorrow. The disciples are confused. Verse 6, sorrow has filled their hearts and the worst is yet to come. Maybe you are confused. Maybe your heart is full of sorrow. Then let me commend to you the closing words of Christ in these next two weeks. Some of Christ's last words are among his best words. The next two weeks are full of wonderful words of life. This week, your sorrow will turn in to joy ask and you will receive that your joy may be full next week the father himself loves you in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world See, that's what you need to know and hear you need realistic biblical expectations of the difficulty of the christian life and the possibility and provision of joy in the Christian life, even in the midst of all the difficulty. And then you need to see prayer for what it is and the means that it is to the joy that we all want in the middle of the trouble that we all face. So that's the plan today. Just three points. We're going to start with the confusion and sorrow of the Christian life. Then we'll consider the clarity and the joy of the Christian life. In light of point one, how is point two possible. And then we'll close with point three as our application. Pray for that clarity and joy. Your big idea is nice and simple. Our title is our main idea. In Christ, your sorrow will turn into joy. That is guaranteed for everyone in Christ. in Christ, your sorrow will turn into joy. To face the sometimes confusing and often difficult life, you need to know and believe that in Christ, your sorrow will turn into joy. So let's read the text. Again, let's make sure that what I'm saying is coming from what Christ is saying here. I want you to follow along as I read for you John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24, and I encourage you to pay attention because this is what God himself wants to say to you today. John 16, 16, Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious, good, loving, providing, Present Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would, by your Spirit, work through your Word. We ask now that you would, for the next few minutes, fix our minds on things above, fix our minds on Jesus Christ. Father, set aside all the other things that are grabbing for our attention, all the other good things that we have awaiting for us um, this afternoon. We pray that we would, for a minute, set those aside and think and focus on eternal Things and heavenly realities. Father, maybe all of the confusing things and the sorrowful things that are clamoring for our attention, we pray that you would help us to read those things this morning in light of what Christ says to us here, in light of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Father, you have told us to ask that our joy may be full. And so I ask that by your Spirit, through your word, you would give us great joy in believing and knowing and trusting in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, please do through me now what I cannot do and do in each and every one of us what we cannot do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, we begin with the confusion and sorrow of the Christian life as we find the disciples confused and full of sorrow. Why? Context. Verse 16 sets it up for us. Look at 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. First off, seven times in our passage, we read that phrase, a little while. In a little while, we're going to have to discuss what that little while means. the, The second one, at least. For I think that the first one is clear. A little while, and you will see me no longer. There's not a lot of question about what Christ is talking about there. Remember where we are. We are in John 13 through 17, which has been appropriately named the Farewell Discourse. Discourse is just communication, teaching, talk, words. This is discourse. In fact, as we get to verse 17 in our passage, we have just finished the single longest discourse, the single longest monologue in this whole book. The disciples last spoke back in 1422, and since then, up until 1617, it's all Christ. It's all been the words of Christ. If you've got one of those red-letter Bibles, not the most helpful thing in the world because they're all the words of Christ. But if you've got a red-letter Bible, it's all red letters in this section because it has been all Christ. And in this discourse as a whole, the disciples have spoken very little This truly is a discourse. It's the teaching and words from Christ. And as it's his farewell discourse, and we know that his farewell is his death, then we have before us here Christ's death discourse. Death is the context of all that we're reading. Remember, 13 verse 1 kicks this whole section off when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. 13.3, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, was going back to God. 13.21, one of you will betray me. 13.33, yet a little while, there it is again, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, but where I am going, you cannot come. Again, on and on he goes. Jesus is departing, the disciples are despairing, Jesus is teaching, and the disciples are not tracking. They are confused. Look at verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. Clearly confused. And I think the repetition of Christ's words back to him communicate that. Don't we all do that? We don't understand what someone is saying. And as a stalling tactic, we repeat back to them what they just said, to try to give ourselves a little time to come up with some sort of reasonable response. I do this in Bible study. I, I really don't like discussion and q and I am a manuscript guy. Right? Let me think it out and let me write it out. Uh, off the cuff is hard, and I can end up sounding little better than disciples. Are you asking the, 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 the very thing that they just said? Right? It's a stalling tactic. It's, it's evidencing confusion. And verse 18, clarifies that confusion even further. Look at it. I love this. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Very clear. This isn't a legitimate application of this verse, but I choose to take comfort from that verse. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, the greatest teacher and communicator who ever lived, who has been teaching them for the last three years and these last probably three hours or so, we do not know What he is talking about. Again, I hope that is not too often the general response to my sermons. We do not know what he is talking about. Uh, But that is the disciples' response to Christ's sermon here. And so let me be clear here is what I am talking about. Sometimes the Christian life is confusing. What the disciples are experiencing here is again, it's somewhat unique in redemptive history, but there are general legitimate truths and applications that we can draw for for ourselves from their experience. And I don't think we tend to give the disciples enough credit. It's like what we can be tempted to do sometimes with Old Testament Israel. Why are you guys grumbling again? What are you doing building a golden calf to worship? Didn't you just see the 10 plagues? Didn't you just see the dividing of the Red Sea, the devastation of the Egyptian army? Didn't you just see the Lord descend on the mountain an overwhelming, obvious display of presence and power? What are you doing? Are you dumb? If that's your response, you little understand sin and you little understand your own heart. Because I am tempted to do the same thing every day. I do, to some degree, do the same thing every day. And so don't do that with the disciples with what they're about to do. Jesus tells them in verse 32 next week, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Confused, they will abandon Christ. Why? Expectations. You've got to try and understand and then see yourself in them and them in you. This was everything for them. They had left everything. They expected everything. This very night they've been arguing according to Luke. After Christ has instituted the Lord's Supper. They're arguing about which of them is the greatest. We've just finished talking about greatness in Matthew's Gospel. In eighteen one, they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Even after the resurrection, they're still going to ask in Acts six, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It seems that they had some expectations. It seems that they too were somewhat caught up in the nationalistic messianic expectations. Here we go. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to free Israel, set up the kingdom. And we're his inner circle. Like, we're his guys. This is going to be great. We are going to be great. Now, of course, there was also genuine love and concern for the Lord. But like the rest of us, the disciples were just all mixed up, a mix of good motives and bad, a mix of God motives and self motives. The point is, yes, they did love him. They thought he was the Messiah. They had some misunderstandings of what Messiah meant. They thought he was going to deliver Israel. They thought they were going to be right there with him. This was everything. He was their everything. And now he's leaving them. He's talking about one of them betraying him. He's talking about his own death. Disappointment. Devastation. Despair. And so, of course, they are confused. What about you? What did you expect that has not come to pass? What, what have you or had you set your mind on as the thing? Right? You are kind of everything. If I can just have this thing or be this thing, how has that expectation affected you? Sometimes the Christian life is good. This is why I keep encouraging. Read the Psalms. We need, the Psalms are a divinely inspired revelation of the experience of the Christian life. David is regularly experiencing and expressing this confusion. Just one for you, Psalm 13. Listen to this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Four times this is poetic effectiveness. How long, how long, how long, how long? You can feel his confusion. You can hear David's sorrow. And so that's part of what you should expect in the Christian life. There will be confusion at times. And there will be sorrow. Go back to our text. In verse 19, we see that Jesus knows. He's aware of their confusion. He cares for them in their confusion. He's about to comfort them in their confusion. But first, look at the first part of verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, stop. There's one of Christ's favorite phrases. 25 times in John's gospel. Amen, Amen. Truly, truly. It's like his signal of significance. Wake up! Pay attention. This is really important. Pay attention. This is trustworthy and true. This is true, true. What is it? You will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. You add verse 33 to that. In the world you will have tribulation or just trouble. We don't use the tribulation word much anymore. Weeping, lamenting, sorrow, trouble. That's what Christ says you will have. Is that part of your expectation of the Christian life? We see it with the disciples here. We see it in the Psalms. We see it with the Apostle Paul. Second Corinthians one eight, Pastor Mike and I didn't even coordinate this. I didn't even act, tell him about this. Tell him that I was going to mention the verse that he opened our service with. But Paul's heart that we just read, he opens. He said, we, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Affliction, despair, death, Go read Paul's summary account of his life and his troubles in 2 Corinthians 11. In this world you will have tribulation. Listen, I don't think that Jesus can be just talking to the disciples there. You will be sorrowful. Yes, we will see in a second that that does have a unique application to the disciples. But I think it must have an application to us as well. Again, as we look at David, as we look at Paul, as we look at just the the experience of the Christian life in Scripture and in history. Confusion and sorrow are often part of the Christian life. And it is kind on the part of Christ to honestly and realistically talk to us about this in some of his final words. For if you expect the trouble, the trouble will be a little bit less trouble. If you understand that this is normal, that this is the promised part of the Christian life, it'll catch you a little bit less off guard and lay you a little bit less low. Expect confusion and sorrow. But that, praise God, is only part of the story, and we know ultimately only a very small part of the story. And so point number two, here's the good news that can transform your experience of the bad news. Let's now consider the clarity and the joy of the Christian life. Back to the text. We haven't finished verse 20 yet. We stopped at the sorrow. Don't ever stop at the sorrow. The good news of the gospel is that we are guaranteed to never stop at the sorrow. Look at verse 20 again. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Pause. There's the joy. Well, that's a different kind of joy. I want you to see first the world for what it is, right there in that little phrase: "The world will rejoice." Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to this world. First John 5:12. Do not love the world. Why not? This is why. Because this is what the world is. Remember, John uses the word world not for the creation, the physical world, but for the spiritual world, the, the world of man, the system of the world that exists entirely in opposition to the maker of that world. John 1.10, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The world did not know its maker. The world rejected its maker. And then the world rejoiced when it murdered its maker. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life. And just to be clear, let's not forget a few weeks ago, you were part of that world. And so you killed the author of life. I killed the author of life. For why is he hung up there? on that cross. Why is he suffering and dying? It's for sin. It is for my sin. He had to die for me to be saved from my sin. This is why we don't make a big deal of the Jews or the Romans as the ones responsible for killing the Christ. We are the ones responsible for killing the Christ. Our sin is the reason that Christ had to come and had to die. But The world does not and cannot know and understand this. So when Jesus says a little while and you will see me no longer, we know he's talking about his death. So when he then says the world will rejoice, that means that the world is rejoicing because of his death. Not as we would glory in the cross and find our joy in the cross, in his loving motivation for the cross and the result of that cross, which is our salvation, but the world is rejoicing because he, the light who exposes all the darkness, is dead and gone. Now he's out of the way, no longer a bother. This is why you shouldn't want to be conformed to the world. This is why you should not love the world. This is why I'm so careful and so concerned about my lingering love for the world, and so careful to do what I can to shepherd my children well and to protect them from that that love of the world that rejoices at the death of its maker. The world delights in and celebrates the death of the maker of that world, the one who had come to redeem that world. And see the nature of the world there. Back to verse twenty. Back to the disciples. Back to you. You will be sorrowful, but, but your sorrow will turn into joy. There's your big idea. There's your hope in the midst of your sorrow. What does Jesus mean? And how is it possible for sorrow to turn into joy? Well, to answer that, we've got to first go back to verse 16. Look at it again. I said we'd have to sort out this a little while and a little while. Well, here we are. It's the second little while that is the question. Listen to verse 16 again. A little while and you will see me no longer. That has to at least include the death of Christ. He keeps going. And again, a little while, and you will see me. That's the one that's the question. What does Jesus mean in a little while, you will see me? There's actually a whole lot of debate about this. And the easiest answer is obviously the resurrection. Uh, A little while, just a couple of hours, you'll see me no longer, I will die. And again, a little while, just a couple of days, you will see me, I will rise again. Resurrection. And the resurrection changes everything. Death is sorrow, life is joy. I am going to die, there will be sorrow, but I am going to live again, there will be joy. Obvious, yes, that's, that's what this is about. That's what this whole thing is about. We said that this farewell discourse could be called the death dif- discourse, but the beauty is that this death discourse ends up being all about life. So let's let's be clear. Why has sorrow filled the disciples' hearts? Why are they confused at this moment? It's because they have not yet understood the work of Christ. You see, they are still considering Christ and life apart from Christ's death and resurrection. And we may think that we know better, but here's what I want us to get this morning. We often forget this, and we too often consider Christ and consider our life entirely apart from the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Confusion and concern come from trying to understand Jesus apart from his death and resurrection Sadness and sorrow come from trying to understand your life apart from Christ's death and resurrection. And that means that clarity and joy come only from a better understanding of and living in light of Christ's death and resurrection. And how does this understanding come? Last week... Only by the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, who will guide you into all the truth, who will teach you all things and bring to remembrance Christ's words. You, this is, I think this is really, really interesting. This is you know, one of those things that I'm probably only interested in, and you're not, but you're, you're stuck with it. Basically, every modern commentator that I looked at seems to take Christ's words in verse 16 as a reference to his resurrection. And you will see me. Resurrection. But, in my very unscientific survey, it seems that basically every older commentator does not. Look back at chapter 14, verse 18, because it feels similar to 16, 16. I think this is important. 14, 18. We saw back there, Jesus say to the disciples, same discourse, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, there it is again, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And then here again is the gospel in seven words, because I live, you also will live. But when we considered that verse, I went out of my way to argue that those words were not primarily about the disciples seeing Jesus' bodily resurrection. Coming right after the spirit discourse and the promise to send the Holy Spirit, the first spirit discourse, and then right before the second spirit discourse and his coming to help us by teaching us, I argued that Jesus is actually talking there about his promised presence with the disciples and with us forever through the Holy Spirit who will be with us and in us forever. And that's how basically every older commentary takes chapter 16, verse 16. Calvin says, Jesus mitigates and soothes their sorrow for his absence by this comfort, that it won't last long, and thus he magnifies the grace of the Spirit, by which they will see him, and he will be continually present with them. Think what I'm saying is how many people have understood this passage is that in a little while you will see me, Jesus is saying, in a little while you will see me by the Spirit. I'm going to take the easy way out here and argue that it's probably a little bit of both. I don't see how it couldn't be a little bit of both. Of course, after the sorrow of his death, the realization and the seeing of his resurrection and life, would have brought the disciples great joy. Of course. They, they first hear that something is going on uh, in chapter 20, and Peter and John race to the tomb, or are sprinting. I love that John, too humble to name himself, in the book he is authoring, throws in there that he outran Peter to the tomb. I definitely would have done that. And then I beat Peter to the tomb, because I was faster than Peter. But no, they're excited. They're anticipating what's going on. And so they're expressing that joy and getting to the tomb. And then when they see Jesus, we read in 2020, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I wish the glad word still had the weight today that it should. It's the same word as our text. It's the joy word. The NASB says the disciples rejoiced. You will see me, and your sorrow will turn into joy. It has to include that. It has to include the disciples seeing the resurrected Christ. But what if it also includes more than that? I don't know about, I haven't, maybe you need to come talk to me uh, if this has happened for you, but you have not laid physical eyes on Jesus. If you have, please see Pastor Mike and talk with him. Let's talk. What does it mean for us? What about us? Look at verse 22. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. What a promise! Surely that's not a promise just for the disciples. What if that's a promise for you too? No one taking my joy from me sounds pretty good. So how can I see him? How can I rejoice? context. It's the Holy Spirit. This whole thing is about the Holy Spirit. It's about the death of Christ, the departing of Christ, and the sending of the Spirit, and the presence of the Spirit, and all that that will entail. This week connects directly back to last week. The joy connects directly back to the Word and the writer of that Word, and the worker through that Word, the Holy Spirit. I think that Jesus must also be talking here about the spiritual sight of faith. As he'll say to Thomas in 21:29, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That means that you too can be blessed. That means that you too can have this joy. Though we have not seen, if by grace we believe. All through this gift of faith. And so Calvin goes on, Though he is not seen with the bodily eyes, yet his presence is known by the undoubted experience of faith. We are taught by Paul, it's true that believers, as long as they remain on earth, are absent from the Lord because they walk by faith and not by sight. But it is equally true that they may justly in the meantime glory in having Christ dwelling in them by faith being united to him as members to the head in possessing heaven along with him by hope thus the grace of the spirit is the mirror in which christ wishes to be seen by us you can see christ by the spirit through the word through and so I think it has to be both because you cannot separate the physical presence of the Lord with the disciples upon his resurrection from the promised spiritual presence of the Lord with the rest of us by the Holy Spirit in Christ, until Christ returns once again bodily. We do not know what he is talking about. <laughs> the point is, is that this promise is for you too. This promise that in Christ By the Holy Spirit, through faith, you can see Him. You can trust Him. And your sorrow will turn into joy. How? What's the resurrection of Christ? And it's the presence of Christ. And it's the promised return of Christ. Look at verse 21. This is so perfect. Happy Mother's Day. Sorry, Artesia. Jesus masterfully... And graphically illustrates his point for us here. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That needs little explanation. And we know that that's true. I, in the world, and my wife keep having kids five times. We forget. She no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being is being born into the world. That is a clear, perfect illustration of what Jesus is saying and what we need to be hearing. Jesus is illustrating there, your sorrow will turn into joy. And listen, this is a key principle of the Christian life that we must get. Expectations, expect this. Note that Jesus doesn't just say that some joy will come after some sorrow. The joy of new life doesn't just come after the sorrow of labor, but it is precisely through the sorrow and pain of labor that the joy of the new life comes. There's a causal connection. The pain is productive of the joy. It is the sorrowful and painful process itself that produces the joy and a life. And so it is with the Christian life. For so it was with Christ. Jesus is illustrating first and foremost his resurrection. He was the suffering servant. He was the man of sorrows, and that is precisely why he came and who he came to be. It was only through his willing submission to the suffering and sorrow that our sin deserved and demanded that Jesus could bring about the life and the joy. But the very heart of the gospel, the good news, is that our salvation, the heart of this good news, is that the way to life is death, the way to gain is to lose, the way to joy is sorrow, expectations. Is this what we expect of the Christian life? For this is how it must be. For we are sinners. So Christ had to come and suffer and die. For that sin. But even once he does that. And gives us the new life. We still remain in a sinful. Broken. Sorrow filled world. And so you can expect. That you will experience this. Regularly. And true joy. Cannot come. Without first being preceded by. Sorrow. But. In Christ, though preceded by sorrow, the good news is that the true joy will come. Your sorrow will turn into joy. 1511, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's the goal. That's what we're all after. That's what Christ is promising us here. And that's what's guaranteed. By his resurrection. You can trust the one who defeated death through death for you. That when he says he is speaking to you and working for you. That your joy may be full. It will be full. For Jesus does all things well. And he cannot fail in that which he says. In that which he sets out to accomplish. And he has set out to accomplish your full joy. And so it will happen. But. All right, great, sounds good. What about all the troubles? Some of you are going to walk out those doors right into a whole lot more troubles. What about the sorrowful circumstances? Sometimes in the Christian life, it feels like all you can see is sorrow. 1518, Martin Luther. We'll see if this is helpful. I find this really, really helpful. I've been chewing on this all week. In 1518... Going back, we at the beginning of the Reformation. Luther is famous for his 95 theses, 1517. His 28 theses in 1518 are even better. This is called the Heidelberg Disputation. I'm not going to get into all of it. I'm not going to bore you with the details. But it's there that Luther explains the gospel and his understanding of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's there that he's probably most famous for laying out this distinction that Luther makes Between a theology of glory, which he accuses Rome of holding, of man's glory, of our own glory. A theology of glory versus a theology of the cross, which he believes is the biblical view. This is Luther's 19th thesis. Listen to what this is. I think this is really important to what we're talking about. If we can understand what he's saying. This is what Luther says 500 years ago. So cool. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian. We're all theologians. We all believe things about God. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian, listen, who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in the things which have actually happened. You see what he's saying there? What he's saying is that you cannot base your judgment on who God is, his nature and his works, what he's up to. You cannot base that on what you are seeing and experience right now with your physical senses in the present circumstances of your life. You can't make your judgment of God based upon what you're seeing and experiencing in your life right now. Does that make sense? As an obvious example, you cannot look at those who are rich and at ease in life right now and then make the assumption, oh, they are good and right with God. We know, we know better. For a silly, not silly, for an extreme example, Harvey Weinstein, born not far from here in Flushing, two miles away, founder of Miramax, sold it to Disney for eighty million dollars. One of the most successful film producers ever. Here's a fun fact: they analyzed Academy Awards accepted speeches from 1966 to 2016, and they found that Weinstein, uh, Weinstein, Weinstein, Weinstein had been thanked or praised in 34 of those speeches, which was the exact same number as God had been thanked or praised in that same period of time. So Einstein praised and thanked as much as God. But this man had everything that the world tells you is good. All the riches, success, fame, ease, the blessings. And we now know, of course, that he was a monster. monster. Terrorizing, and abusing, and oppressing women. And so... We know that we cannot equate earthly success with spiritual success. Earthly riches and goodness with spiritual riches and goodness. That's an extreme example. But you do it more than you think. You look around at your circumstances, especially when they are hard, especially when they're not meeting those expectations, especially when your heart is full of sorrow and you're tempted to think and wonder. What's wrong here? What's wrong with God? Where is God? And you are starting to be tempted to make your judgments upon the nature of God and the goodness of God and the works of God based upon what you are currently seeing and experiencing. Don't do that. Luther goes on in his next thesis and says, he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen only through suffering and the cross. There it is, right there. Here's the point. The cross is the lens through which we look to interpret life and to interpret our circumstances and to understand our God. The way of the cross is the way of the Christian life. And the way of the cross is a way of sorrow and of suffering. But it is also always a way to joy. And it is only, it's the only way to joy. For it is only in and through the cross of Christ that the sin, which is misery and death, uh, has been dealt with and done away with. And so you must learn to read your circumstances through the lens of Christ present with you by the Holy Spirit and through the lens of the cross, which tells you everything that you need to know about who God is and what he's doing and what he thinks about you. He has dealt with the sin and the death and the hell. And if that has been dealt with and done away with, if you understand what your sins are, yeah, I have a hard time. I don't listen. I just, I just, I'm skeptical of any profession of faith with someone who has not just really come to grips and felt and understood and been burdened with, oh, oh, here's what this sin is. Here's what I've done to the Lord. And once you have felt that weight and seen just a tiny glimpse of how God sees that sin and known how much of an offense. It is to the God who made you to understand and see and know the great weight of sin. And then to understand and see and know that it, that all of it is entirely and forever taken away. That is joy that cannot be taken from it. That is joy that can sustain you through the many and often great difficulties and sorrows of life. You see, the gift of faith gives us eyes to see reality more clearly. To see eternity more clearly. And to live less and less as if this life is all that there is. So much of our sorrow is because we're so caught up in this world and we're convinced that this is it. This isn't, it's not it. What if we believed more and more and lived more and more as if the life to come, as if eternity was what it was really all about. And that that life to come will be perfect joy and rest and peace and that it is all of it guaranteed for you already in the death and resurrection of Christ your sorrow will turn into joy do you expect that can you see it do you believe him then trust him in whatever circumstances you are facing right now whatever they are no matter how heavy no matter how sorrowful second corinthians 4:17 this light momentary affliction. Read that phrase, then go read 2 Corinthians 11, and then come back to that phrase. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Trust. And very quickly, number three, pray. I'll be very fast. This this third point is your application point. Pray for clarity and joy. I know that many of you are facing difficult and troubling circumstances. I know that there is sorrow. I know that joy is sometimes a struggle. What do you do? We're going to come back to this next week. But big idea, quickly. I think this actually goes better with what comes next week. We're going to shift to talk more about the Father next week. But look at verses 23 and 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Hold on, what does that mean? I think Jesus is talking there about the questions of verse 17. I think what he's saying is that because of the completion of his work, because of the coming revelation of the Spirit, we will no longer have to wonder about the meaning and significance of the death and resurrection of Christ. We know. We don't have to ask him anymore. So now we read everything through the lens of the cross. Back to 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Pause. How much we take it for granted that we have the privilege of praying in the name of Jesus. Yeah, they had never done that before. Ever. This has never happened before. This is new. And yeah, go, go listen to Peter Sunday School. He laid this out really, really well. Go listen to the prayer in the end of uh, what he talked about here. But, but praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean tagging on the words in Jesus' name, amen. It's not the abracadabra at the end of your prayer. You can pray in Jesus' name without saying, in Jesus' name, amen. You can not pray in Jesus' name and say, in Jesus' name, amen. Again, it's just not a magical formula. As Peter laid out, to pray in Jesus' name means that we come to God entirely on the basis of Christ's work. On his merit, not ours. So to pray in his name first requires believing on him. Resting on his righteousness credited to your account. There is no such thing as other prayer. There's no unbelieving prayer. There are no prayers. These aren't prayers. Because the only way that we can approach God is, is through Christ. You have no right to approach him in prayer. Except for Christ. So, I only approach the Father in the name of the Son. Based upon his person and work. That's what it means to pray in his name. But, it also then must mean that it is to pray in accord with who he is and to pray in accord with his will. And this is important. I think this is what we sometimes miss. This is where we may all need a bit of reorientation when it comes to prayer. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Father, I love Midway Inlet and Clubhouse Creek I love your beauty and glory revealed in your creation at the beach. My favorite spot in the world is the covered porch, looking out over the creek across to Pauly's Island. I want to glorify you and enjoy you there forever. Would you please remove my brother out of this world and give to me his beach house? (laughs) Amen. Ask and you will receive. (laughs) Of course not. Stupid, silly example. Because such an absurd, self-centered, sinful prayer could never be prayed in Jesus' name. And it's a ridiculous example. But, but, how much of our prayer life consists in such prayers that are entirely about us? Entirely about self. Not needs, give us this day our daily bread, our needs, but our, but our wants, our expectations our comfort, our ease, are entirely about this life, entirely about our kingdom and our will being done. Maybe, maybe that's not what prayer is really about. Of course, prayer is asking. We're great at that part. Of course, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Prayer is, of course, the pouring out of our hearts openly and honestly before God. But do we ever ask? are our anxieties ever about? Is that heart that we're ever pouring out, is it, is it ever fixed and focused on him? Is it ever anxious to better know him? Is it ever asking more of him? Because that's what I think that Jesus is primarily talking about here. And I think that again because of the context. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be I think that has to be more than I ask for a car, I get a car, joy. I can't be what he's saying. There has been a context to the promised joy here. Back in 1511, we just read it. These things that I have spoken to you, that is my words, here are my words, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's right after he has said that he will ask the Father. And the Father will give them another helper, the Spirit, who will teach them and bring to their mind all that Christ has said. That's right before he says the Spirit will speak what he hears, taking the words of Christ and declaring it to them. I think that the prayer here in our passage has to have something to do with that. Maybe I'll try to make the case more next week. For now, as we close, I want you to see the clear connection between the word and joy in 1511 and prayer and joy in 1624. You want joy that can stand the test of all the sorrow the world can throw at you, the sorrowful yet always rejoicing peace and rest in the Lord? Then ask. Ask for the Holy Spirit, the helper. Ask the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of clarity he is the spirit of life. He is the spirit of joy. Jesus came that his joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How is that possible? It's only by the Holy Spirit. And have you ever tried asking for that? I'm not telling you to stop praying about the other things. I'm telling you to make sure you're praying about this thing. You ever pray for the Holy Spirit? Do You ever ask to know God, which is eternal life? And to know him better by the Holy Spirit through this wonderful word. Ask. Of course ask that your difficult circumstances might be alleviated and changed. But I also encourage you to ask that your heart might be alleviated and changed in the midst of those circumstances. Whatever the Lord designs to do. Ask that you could taste and see that the Lord is good, even in the difficult circumstances. Pray for the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Whatever you ask in the name of Jesus, God will give it to you. What better prayer, more in the name of Jesus, could we pray than, Father, help me to delight in you above all else. Help me to have joy in the midst of sorrowful circumstances. Help me to be glad in you and glorify you no matter what comes my way in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So yes, the Christian life is sometimes confusing and full of sorrow. Expect that. But it can also be clear and it can also be full of joy no matter the circumstances. And expect that. And expect that it comes the more and more you know and trust this Lord who gave his life for you and rose again that you might live. Ask him for understanding. Ask him for joy. Ask and you will receive. Bow with me and let's close with a word of Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that it does not and will not return to you void. Father, your word this morning will accomplish that which you intend. Father, I pray that that which you intend this morning is the salvation of sinners. I pray that that which you intend this morning is the sanctification of your people. I pray that it would be the comfort of and peace and joy of those who are among your people, who are in the midst of difficult and sorrowful and troubling circumstances right now. Father, fix their minds on you. Help them to see your glory and your grace. Help them to know your presence and your kindness and your compassion and your care. Father, help us as we leave this place and go into our weeks to more and more read everything that comes our way. The whole of our life and all of our circumstances, big and small, good and bad, help us to read those things increasingly through the lens of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, give us the joy of your Son, Jesus Christ. Fill us with full joy, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.